welcome back to another episode of our Instagram Live interviews where we um, dive deeper into what our speaker talked about on the previous Sunday. Um, I'm Alyssa, I'm the Communications Director at Redemption Hill, and part of that job is getting to host these interviews every week, and it's been really great. Uh, so this week, we are talking with Robert again as we near the end of our liturgy series. Um, we've been going through our core values as a church and just walking through um, what it looks like um, and the practices of people who are walking in the way of Jesus um, and talking about the values that we hold um, as we learn the way of Jesus together. So last Sunday, um, we heard from Robert on the core value of biblical justice. Um, and justice is a real hot topic buzzword right now, um, especially in the church. So if it's one that makes you swell, sweat a little bit, uh, you're not alone. And um, you're probably in the right mindset for our discussion this afternoon. Um, we're going to be talking about why it's such a hot topic um, how we can do justice when problems feel really big um, and hope that we can hold on to as we move forward into this reality. Um, so to get us all on the same page before diving in, um, Robert defines biblical justice as justice that is not only social, racial, and economic, but the overarching work of the people of God to join the work of the kingdom of God in setting things right and making things whole. Um, on Sunday, he called us into practical action we can take on a local level, encouraged us to look for the injustice in our own neighborhood and leverage our privilege for those without, rocking the boat of injustice with our courage, truth, sacrifice, and voice. Um, and if you're like, well, that sounds like a lot, I want to listen to that whole thing, um, you can um, listen to the whole sermon, which is on the podcast now. So we're going to go ahead and get started, um, get Robert in here, and then we'll be good to go. There we go. Hey, Lisa. Perfect. How's it going? I'm doing well. Doing okay. Just uh, in the car, and sorry, sorry, I'm late. Had a uh, busy morning. That's all good. No worries. Um, thanks for joining us from your car. It's yeah. great. I like your earrings. They're, they they pick up the screen. They're beautiful. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> they they are a good earring for like on days when your hair is dirty and you need people to not look at your dirty hair. You're just like, look at these massive earrings. It works out great. The magician's trick, the misdirection. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So um, we're just going to jump right into it. Um, you said on Sunday, uh, the church has to be a counter example of justice in the world. Um, and I would just say, at least in the like last season of the church, um, it looks often like the church isn't doing much for justice at all. Um, and I would just love to have you talk a little bit about why you think there is such a disconnect in the church around justice. Um, why does it seem to be such a buzzword? And like, why is it, why do you think it's so polarized? Well, you know, I always want to jump into history when we talk about like that, the content. Mm -hmm. I would say that um, 
it was in in 2000 so 22 years ago mm -hmm. uh there was this like george w bush ran on this this vision of what he called compassionate conservatism where mm -hmm. he had, he had this vision where um political conservatives could uh have a sensible immigration policy and um some level support for social programs but also be fiscal conservatives now i i'd say that didn't materialize in a lot of ways primarily around you know they they just spent a lot of money and they weren't really fiscal conservatives but i, I it was okay to be conservative and to be to have this social vision for flourishing and i mm -hmm. think that it created a lot of space in the evangelical church um to start to look at, at this um, unhealthy dichotomy that had kind of grown up between Catholicism, mainline, Catholic, mainline Protestantism, and evangelicalism, where evangelicalism was all proclamation, all teaching, all Bible, mm -hmm. and the uh, liberal uh, mainline churches were, there was, there was no center or truth. It was all output of good works, or at least, you know, um, virtue signaling towards good works. And then you had Catholics who had had not much teaching, lots of ritual, but had been very good because of um, primarily like Catholic theologians of the third world in the 19th and 20th century that had had this vision for um, a gospel that was holistic around this preference for the poor. And mm -hmm. you see these movements of Catholics throughout church history that have lived not only um, taking on poverty as a, as a cloak of, um, of belonging to the kingdom um, within their priests and their religious orders, but then they also have these um, Catholic social works that were the very basis of most of modern um, poverty care. And so, yeah. so like that was happening and all of a sudden evangelicals said, you know what, we need to be more holistic and we need to not just have proclamation of the gospel, but we need to live it out in these practical ways by, uh, and then they started to talk about poverty. They started to talk about immigration. They started to talk about um, homelessness and food insecurity and what it looked like to create flourishing in neighborhoods of need. And uh, honestly, a lot of the gentrification that happened in, um, in neighborhoods that had historic poverty was built on a lot of people saying, we're going to move into the city and start to, try to create flourishing neighborhoods and mm. at first that was a really good thing and then after after time it pushed people out so there's right it, i think that there's a history to it and then in 2016 um there was this pretty harsh turn after the years of george w bush and barack obama that had been um more of this classical liberalism um donald trump came in and it transformed the conversation to um seeing any sort of social action as communist or socialist mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we couldn't have this place in the middle where we could be deeply concerned about the truth of the gospel proclamation and have a place where we engaged with those who needed us the most here at home and abroad yeah uh, and we became much more much more polarized unfortunately so so i think that we haven't talked enough about it but it's just been the last few years where it became taboo yeah uh, 
this like marker of who's in or who's out with your politics based on how you talk about social justice. And then in 2020, with the movement of Black Lives Matter and talking about racial justice, I think that was the end of the use of the word justice to mm -hmm. not be a political term. Justice became a wholly political term around racial justice. Yeah. And I think that there was a long time where the church pursued at least a, a conversation around racial justice from 1990 to 2010. There was a lot of conversations around desegregating Sunday mornings. And what happened was that all got shut down with, and, and a lot of that, that's the Marxist rhetoric of Black Lives Matter, the organization, um, where a lot of people were in, in alignment with the goals of Black Lives Matter in terms of racial justice and um, equitable policing. Uh, when they started to use Marxist frameworks for it, people, people pulled away because of the politics. Yeah. That makes so sense. that's probably more than you wanted, but that's, that's the no, history. No, that's great. I think it's really helpful, especially what you're saying about like how it not really being a big thing until like 2016, which feels really true. Cause I feel like even in like, when I was a kid, you just didn't hear it. Like what didn't seem like such a big deal. And then I really remember like once I was in college, everything really feeling tense and then just being tense ever since then. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. That's real. <laughs> it happened. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, um, you said the phrase like not being partisan hacks. Um, when we are pursuing justice in the world as a church. Um, and I'd love to hear you talk more about that idea. Um, so if we're not trying to like necessarily like partner with political systems, um, how do we make change um, like around housing or domestic violence or immigration? Um, and then also, do you think there's ever a time for like stepping into like policy in a bigger way, um, especially in these like large scale moments of national injustice that we've seen in the last couple of years. Yeah, um, man. I, this, this requires a lot of wisdom in terms of how you engage. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand parties are systems of power. Right. And they're built to gather and use things that we care about, issues that we care about, to help us feel like we're part of a tribe of people who care about them too. And then they glob on all these other things that they want to use the, the power of that party to mm -hmm. implement their vision that has nothing to do with the thing you care about, but because you care about that thing and they care about the thing, all of a sudden you're stuck with them. And what's happened is um, on the right and the left, Christians have been sucked into party allegiances based on uh, narrow ideals over single issues. I mean, we're talking one and two issues. Most Christians vote on one or two issues. And the reality is that we, once we are in the pocket of a party, we no longer have power. Hmm. And, and that's, unless there's a threat of you not voting for them, they don't care what you say or what you do. And a lot of times what political parties will do is they will take an issue that you care about and they won't solve it because they want you to be enraged by what's happening in that issue so that you'll vote for them to mm -hmm. solve it. 
And that's cynical, but that's just the reality. They want the issue more than they want the solution because the issue gets you to vote. Um, you know, I, I think you're going to see this is the first election um, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade this summer. And we're going to see, will that have a dampening effect on conservative voters who were voting to overturn Roe v. Wade for 40 years? And now that that's done, will they care in the same manner? Will the Republicans yeah. be able to keep them in the fold? And so I, I think from a practical standpoint, not being a party hack is a, is a powerful way to take away power um, from those who want to do evil by having power. And power is about money and power is about them seeing their ideals. And if you're not the one who's doing the work, then you're, you're outsourcing your ideals to them and hoping that they'll care for them the same way you do. Yeah. Now there's a real politic of we have to, we have to enter in with, Hey, there's probably some good and some bad in both. And we need to choose a vision that we think will work right now. Um, so I, I think that it, it's appropriate to vote. My, my strategy for voting is I always vote against the, the people who are in power. <laughs> um, I, think, I think power itself is a corrupting force and that people getting out of power is the best way for them to do the right thing when they're in power. Because, mm. because if they don't have a reason to stick around, then they have more likelihood of doing what's right in the face of what's almost certain to be voted out. I'm, I'm going to vote them out every time because I think it makes them better what they do if they're not staying around long term. Hmm. Uh, they're not they're not as beholden to entrenched interests you know the average uh, congressman has to raise something like thirty thousand dollars a week just to be able to win re-election and so whoever gives that money gets all the voice and they decide what's going to happen and so voting them out gets a new voice in there and at least yeah. you know you can see some change that's the, that's the way i approach it so all that to say partisan hackery really comes down to the people i feel connected to care about this too so i'm going to do what they do and a part a party line you know the issues of justice if the way that your party approaches justice is unjust but it's your party it's unlikely that you're going to call them out for their for what they do wrong because you care about something else that they do yeah and so we have to stand outside as a prophetic voice to our political powers and say what is right is right and it, you know i i probably am like when I lived in Boston, I was right of center and when living in Boise, I'm left of center. But I, I would say that I have to hold conservatives accountable for ways that they do not promote justice among the things that I care about. And I also have to hold Democrats accountable for the things that they do that like right now, I'm so frustrated with our immigration policy the Democrats could have solved immigration by what the power that they've had the last two years. They've not chosen to do anything. And mm -hmm. we, as a, as a group should vote them out because they chose not to do what they said that they would do because it was, they want to run on the issue, I think. And they just mm -hmm. don't care. But it's fundamentally like what we need as a community is this, you know, transformation around how we run our borders and how we have our immigration quotas and how we do refugee resettlement. And I want to see that. I'm going to hold them accountable to that in the same way on the right. I'm going to hold them accountable to the ideals that I care about, which I think that um, conservative fiscal policies are good policy, but I think that it has to be, it has to be moderated by the needs and responsibilities of the state. And so we need to hold them accountable to do the things that they've been trusted to do. Right. 
Yeah, that's good. So do you think then, like, do you see, how do you see the church's role in these things if we're trying to not affiliate? Um, what does it look like as like a, the church in America? Yeah. Forward in that space. Um, I, I personally hold the opinion that we as Christians cannot have any allegiance but Christ. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that that includes political party. And so I, I don't vote in our primaries because it, the conservative party in our state requires that you join their party to vote. And so I don't get much of a say in what happens in our state because whoever wins that primary is going to go on and win the general election. Um, but I wouldn't do that with Democrats either. I wouldn't join their party just to have the opportunity to vote. Um, so, so this is complex, but I, I really think it comes down to we have to use our voice at the important moments, not at the dumb moments. Mm -hmm. Too often the church wants to speak into every issue and you, we've seen this in the rise of social media where people just have to tell you what they think about everything that comes along because they think that we're just dying to hear about it. When in reality, it just creates a lot of noise. And then when important things happen, the voice is just lost in the noise. And so I think that there have to be things that are really clear that we step into. There's mm -hmm. things that are really complex that uh, need more nuanced, thoughtful engagement. And that's doesn't happen in politics, but that's where, you know, we need experts who are going to lean in and be the voice in those spaces. So um, I, I'm, an, I'm a novice, but I'm a, trying to become an expert at housing policy because I think it's such an important thing in our city. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I'm going to lean in because I think that's what God's called me to care about primarily. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really focusing on housing policy. <laughs> I have dear friends who care deeply about reproductive health from a justice standpoint and from a moral standpoint. And I think that those are really in complex questions that need thoughtful people to engage with them. And in a post row world, it's become even more complex in a state yeah. that has, has a lot of abortion. And so we need, we need thoughtful people who are going to engage and be experts helping educate people on the complexities and then speaking out when bad policy comes to the forefront because most policies are bad because they, they don't recognize the complexity of an issue and they're trying mm -hmm. to win political points by, right. by playing someone's emotion and to someone's visceral response. And so we need to speak out against those kinds of laws, um, but not, not because we don't agree with what the law says, but because it's a bad law that promotes injustice. Um, right. Even, you know, I am, I am a pro-life person. I think that abortion itself is a, um, is a moral wrong. And I think that it, it breaks all sorts of moral rules that we've set aside in our culture. But I also know that our fourth and fifth amendments are there to protect us from unlawful search and seizure and self-incrimination and the way that we adjudicate those sorts of laws are very important for how we live as a free society. And so mm -hmm. I think, think deeply about how we do those things. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Um, I know huge thing we we could talk about it forever but i just wanted to touch on that a little bit so shifting a bit now from uh like political space um more into like our personal lives um how you said um god wants to satisfy this desire inside of us for justice and you partnered that with the nt right quote where he says the echoes of a voice 
that we have the echoes of a voice that calls us to live with a dream for justice. And I just think that's such a beautiful idea. Um, and I would love to just talk about that a little bit, um, talking about what that means for our souls and like for our deep desires. What does justice have to do with all that? Well, let me ask you, so what, what do you think draws you to justice, Alyssa? Oh. Um, I don't know. I guess it's, it's, I think the reason I like that N.T. Wright quote is because it feels like, it feels true to how I feel about it. Like, there's just something in me that, like, feels pulled towards it. That makes me care about it because I can see, like, a potential for beauty that I know could be in there, but it's not. And I want to, like, help put help put the beauty back in there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that we're, we're really talking about sin when we talk about justice. Mm -hmm. um, and like all, all injustice is me imposing my sinful desires on the world around me and demanding that the world fulfill yeah. my unjust appetites, ambitions, and desires. And um, when we see people's sins cause destruction, um, God made it so that we feel pain when that happens um, hmm. because he wants us to not be satisfied with what, we, with what we're experiencing. He wants mm -hmm. us to look at the world and say, something is hella broken and, <laughs> and we have to do something about it. And I think that that's a part of the design of humanity in, in that when we see stuff that's broken, we just have this ache and sadness and desire for something. We don't even know what it is because we haven't experienced lots of justice. And so we're kind of like, we're just hoping that it's out there. Um, so so that's what that's what I think N.T. Wright's trying to get at is just like, I need to see that some things are set right. So I have hope that that God is real and that there is something more than this world that I can attain to, which is true justice and true and really when we talk about justice we're talking about peace we're talking about like this shalom human flourishing the kingdom of god when it comes to life is not this absence of sin but this aliveness of like human flourishing and that's what like when you think about justice we don't i don't care about crime because crime offends my sensibilities I care about crime because the cost of crime is someone I care about deeply is suffering. Mm -hmm. Like human flourishing and justice come from stopping suffering, um, unnecessary suffering. Uh, when you look at like housing, like I want people to have a place where they belong so that they can create a life of flourishing mm -hmm. where can be settled and safe and pursue good work. That's what, that's what housing does. And if you think about it, um, the, the ache I have when I see homelessness is that I know that they need something that they don't have and that they're suffering un, unnecessarily. And that if we just solve that one problem and fundamentally with housing, you solve that problem and you see this cascading effect of, mm -hmm. of their lives come together because they have a place that they belong. Um, so justice isn't, isn't about this ethereal idea. It's about this outworking of taking away the, 
the fundamental societal structural cost of sin so that we can see more flourishing and less needless mm -hmm. destruction. Yeah. Yeah, my, um, I had a professor in college who talked about the same idea and she said that we all have like the memory of Eden in our hearts. <laughs> and so it's, we know when something bad happens, we know that like, it, it shouldn't be that way. There's something um, that because we're made in the image of God, we have that, that pull towards what is beautiful and true. Yeah. And, and so, like, I, I always think about, I have four kids and my, there's always injustice happening among my kids. But <laughs> I, I watch as my third child pushed down my two-year-old and then my oldest child looked at the, the three-year-old that had pushed down the two-year-old and said, hey, and then pushed him down. <laughs> like, in some ways there's justice there because my... <laughs> my third child is experiencing what he did. Like, like he's seeing that there's a cost to what he did to his little sister. Um, but in fun fundamentally, that's not justice. Justice is my oldest daughter picking up my youngest daughter and then inviting my three-year-old to see the cost and apologize and to experience restoration. Like restorative justice is this work of not just... Um, not just punitive justice as retribution, which is how we think about it, but uh, restorative justice is the work of restored relationship and transformed people. And so the goal of justice should not be to, to punish or to keep the world safe from them, but to see them transformed. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at places where there's been genocide or have been um, like South Africa, there was systemic racism that was that everyone participated in for hundreds yeah. of years. And what they did in post-apartheid South Africa is they invited people to these truth and reconciliation commissions where they would speak truthfully about the injustices that would happen. And then those who had committed it would, would admit to what they had done and their complicity in it. And then those who had come and had spoken their truth would offer forgiveness because that was the only way that they could create a community going forward yeah when, every, when everyone is a perpetrator and everyone is a victim how do you move forward but to be transformed yeah and so that's the kind of justice we're talking about is mm -hmm. um that we get more justice when i look more like jesus so i'm learning to be like jesus to see justice flourish you know? yeah yeah oh that's good um along those like forgiveness lines do you think that there's ever a time to like be quiet or like not, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I just feel like a lot of times a pushback towards um, justice work in the church is like, God will bring the vengeance. Like Jesus was silent before Pilate. We're looking for, like, we don't want to call people out, I guess. And I'm wondering if you ever think that there's a time where where we should be quiet or we should just be like, we're not going to worry about the person that enacted the injustice. We're just going to forgive them, and like move on. How do you see that line playing out? That's just come up a whole bunch in my own life. And so I'm just wondering what you think about it. 
the, the complexity of what you're describing is the power dynamics and do you do you have the ability to stand in a way that would bring justice or would just bring more suffering you know mm -hmm. like you you think about russia right now and there's there's this group of women who went out to protest the war in ukraine and while they were protesting they were arrested and then they were arrested and taken to prison and they brought their husbands and sons in to see them in prison and they were told your your significant other's going to go to a, a work camp if you don't conscript into the army hmm. and so like there's just like layer upon layer of injustice and just yeah. sin and um but you but you look at that and you say it's spitting into the wind to to speak into totalitarianism and right. you know yeah. like you live in a place like china uh you're gonna see that there's nothing you can do short of and even including a tiananmen square type of protest that's actually going to bring about transformation right one life doesn't matter and so i think there's subversive ways to pursue justice um that's that's uh not a, not a full version of justice but a partial justice that you can pursue in those situations but i think in a free state in a free place um with the exception of a lot of workplaces um our our job is to say and to demonstrate that things are unright and i think demonstrating that they're unright is better than saying them because if <laughs> If you can step in and be a force for justice and for, um, like in a workplace, something unjust happens. Like, let's say somebody asks for time off to care for um, their sick parent and your boss says no. And then what you can do to show justice is to choose to disadvantage yourself and take their place. Hmm. Whether popping mm. a shift or taking the shift on. Um, it's a way for you to demonstrate the moral, the moral imperative that your boss did not take by doing it yourself. Mm. And I think that is, that's going to be a vital way that we pursue justice, even when we don't have power, and even when we don't have voice or a hope of um, making something good happen. You can still do things that demonstrate, yeah, the corruption of the system. Um, but I, I do think that. One thing we didn't talk about Sunday is that to pursue justice is to create enemies because a mm -hmm. lot of people are opposed to justice itself. A lot of people are opposed to fairness. A lot of people are opposed to the poor and the weak. And the choice that we make is to disadvantage ourselves from being liked and to have the position of power where we have access to those people and we make them into our enemy by siding with their, their victims. That's mm -hmm. the way to go. Whether yeah. it's costly or not, that's the work of the gospel. And it's not about standing up for ourselves for justice. It's about standing up for other people. Because that's a much stronger moral position than yeah. standing up for themselves where it, it seems like this. Um, you have two people and they're opposed to each other. And one's weak and one's strong, but it's just two people's wills. But if a third person enters in and takes his side and says this is unjust, it changes the power dynamic in a way that you know you, you want to see. Um, so I, I think that you have to speak and you've got to take sides, especially when it comes to the weak and the vulnerable. I think you need to use wisdom when you do. Um, but I think too often we just stand by because it's costly to us. And, 
has nothing to do with us wanting to be wise. It's just cowardice mm -hmm. and it's wrong. And as, as much as I don't want to have to do those things, that's what we do. Even yeah. I was, my friend Joe and I went to a movie and um, we, we saw a group of police officers stop and surround a man who was sitting on a sidewalk. He was intoxicated, but he wasn't doing anything that was particularly disruptive. Mm -hmm. there, there were four police officers and, um, and three cars that had surrounded him and were basically um, trying to get him to incriminate himself so that they could deal with him because he was a nuisance. And so Joe and I stood there and took out our phones and were prophetic witnesses to what was gonna happen, hope, hoping that our presence itself would bring about a just solution because they were held accountable by our presence. Right. I, I think that's something that we should do is bear prophetic witness to things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's well, I love, I know you're driving. Can I ask you one last question? Yeah, yeah, I got five more minutes, but we're good. Okay, perfect. That's all we need. Um, I just wanted to talk about hope a little bit right at the end, um, because I know that when we look at the world and look at our small lives and live on a, on a larger scale, things can feel like so overwhelming. Um, like I, you know, I'll never be able to do anything, make any change, might as well not try. Um, but how can we fight that and like embody the hope that God is, um, and how, how do we not lose hope as we fight for justice in the world? Yeah. Um, I think hope, hope isn't a, uh, it's not an idea and it's not, it's not, uh, it's not something you have or don't have. It's something that you um, you kindle and mm. and you you stoke hope, um, and you do that by being around people who are who are doing what you're hoping to see. So, like finding and listening to the stories of people who are pursuing justice is such a powerful mm. stoke hope that God is. Yeah. Things. Um, mm -hmm. Remembering that your perspective is very narrow and skewed towards your experience. Mm -hmm. and so when you're thinking about, um, is there hope in the world? Uh, your life is pretty small. And so you need to find out who are the people who are doing the helping and um, how can you be inspired by what they're doing and celebrate what they're doing. Um, and then I think remembering that I embody one place at one time and I'm going to have a certain number of experiences and my job is to bring justice where I am and go where there's injustice. And so it's much less about me solving the whole system of injustice as being a voice and a person where God has placed me and called me. Yeah. That requires listening. It requires me going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pay attention. And when God says to go, I'm going to go be in a place. And then I'm going to pray that God will reveal to me my role. And then while I'm there, I'm going to pursue justice, pursue the kingdom of God 
and be a voice for the voiceless and be a mm. voice for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the prisoner, um, because that's my job. And other people can do other jobs, but that's my job as a father. Mm. I'm going to do my job. And so yeah. you're never going to solve racism, but um, you can bear prophetic witness to injustice when there's a racial component to it in a country that was founded on racism. Mm -hmm. our, our country was founded by a confederation of slave and non-slave holding states mm -hmm. that built into our constitution ways to protect slavery as an institution. That's yeah. what we, and even that only lasted for 70 years before or 80 years before it broke apart because of it. And we've spent 150 years trying to back together. Yeah. Uh, it's still, it's still a part of our history is still a part of um, how our systems work and we, we want to dismantle it, but it really comes down to where I'm at. Am I going to speak up when someone disadvantages somebody because of their skin color? Um, am I going to speak up when someone treats a woman or someone in the LGBTQ plus community as less than human and less than worth of dignity? Um, because that happens all the time. I, yeah. And I, <laughs> I remember three years ago, I'm at my house and I'm, we put an addition on our house and I'm waiting for the inspector to come from the city. And this is a guy who's been doing it for 50 years. He's retiring the next month. And he made no more, no less than four racist jokes in the 20 minutes that he looked through my house. And mm. I said something that was anemic and probably not forceful enough because the power differential between him as the inspector and me as a person who needed his stamp uh, didn't allow it. But I wrote a letter to the city about him and about my experience with him after he left because I don't, I don't want him representing me as a, as a, mm -hmm. in my city. I want, I want him to be punished because he has chosen to see Mexicans as less than worth of his, than less than worth of dignity. And, yeah. you know, it's tough to do, but that's what you have to do sometimes is take these popular stands. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I know it's sort of long today, but I was like, this is all such important stuff. I wanted to talk about it. So thanks yeah. for, thanks for talking about it with me. No, the, I, I love doing these. These are fun. Thanks for all your work. you put yeah. into. Absolutely. It's been great. All right. Take care, Alyssa. Thanks everybody for joining. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.